In order to build something out of nothing, you really need to build a community. And that community, they're your stakeholders. They are people who are going to have your back on both good days and also bad days. Welcome to Sweat the Technique. I'm Ryan Hill, the CEO of KIPP New Jersey and Miami with 23 schools serving nearly 10,000 students in Newark and Camden, New Jersey and Miami, Florida. For those who are new to us, Sweat the Technique is a podcast from a bunch of veteran educators all about how to apply the lessons we learned from running schools to other areas of life like parenting, coaching, and the business world. Today's guest is Christine Choi. Christine is a partner at the venture capital firm M13, where she advises their portfolio company founders on how to build their brand and communications as they grow their businesses. Christine has helped to launch and build a number of the most exciting companies and nonprofits in the world, from being on the ground for the founding of Teach for America and KIPP Charter Schools, to working as head of communications alongside Sir Richard Branson as they established Virgin Group's North American portfolio. From education reform to space travel, Christine has a unique perspective on what it takes to build some of our nation's most recognizable and impactful brands. So let's welcome Christine. Christine, great to see you. We met 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago now, when you were working on the communications team at KIPP. But before that, you were at another one of the most impactful nonprofits, certainly in America, if not the world, which is Teach for America. How did you get involved in that effort? And what was it like in those early days? Ryan, I wish I could point to some lofty goal about changing public education, impacting lives. But the reality is that as a rising senior in college, My summer goal was literally to have an acceptable reason to drive across the country from New York to Los Angeles. And I found an unpaid summer internship with free housing in South Central Los Angeles. How could I say no to that? That's how I got into Teach for America's very first summer institute at USC. We were social entrepreneurs before that term was coined. We were building something out of literally nothing. So as you can imagine, and as you saw firsthand, it was a tremendously chaotic and exciting and purposeful time and an experience that bonded us to this day. And, you know, I host TFA OG meetups in New York still. They're fantastic. When you work with a small group of people around something as purposeful as creating equal opportunities for public education, for kids, regardless of zip code zones, you know, you're bonded for life. And also true to the Teach for America mission of creating lifelong public education reform advocates in every industry, the founding team and early Teach for America core members went on past their two-year commitments to serve as school superintendents, bank CEOs, entrepreneurs, investors. They are still teachers, they still coach hockey, and they're all fervent believers in the potential of all children. So the mission of Teach for America still lives on in everyone who has participated in TFA. And Teach for America is, for our listeners who don't know, first of all, it's the way I got into education. And when I got in back in 1999, there were about a thousand new core members recent college graduates who weren't all necessarily intending to go into education long term, but wanted to give back or get into education in some form. And you sign up for a two-year commitment. A lot of people teach longer than that. I stayed in education until this day, 20 plus years later. And like I said, there were like a thousand core members at the time that I joined. How big was it back then when you joined? Oh, the first core was 500 people. And remember, again, at that time, Teach for America was not a household name. So you needed to be a little crazy. You needed to be very, very idealistic and really take a chance on a group of people that said, hey, you're going to be doing something really impactful. 
take a chance, come out to South Central, spend two months with us, go and practice, teach, walk to the school or take a bus. Here's a voucher and learn how to be an effective teacher. So it was pretty unprecedented and you really needed to have a tremendous amount of faith and trust in both yourself and also the community that was being built around this first 500. And now it's a big, extremely well-run, thousands of employees, thousands of core members every year. But I assume back in the day, it looked a little bit different. What was it like? How was it different in the early days? Well, back in the 1990s, people were pursuing careers as investment bankers, doctors, lawyers, they were going into grad school. And I didn't know a single person at that time who graduated college to join a startup. That was not normal. And Teach for America was not normal. Wendy Kopp had conceived of one approach to addressing the looming teacher shortage issue that people weren't necessarily thinking too much about, but our public schools were facing. And similarly, KIPP, helped usher the public charter school movement. Back then, KIPP was among the first three charter schools, for example, to be approved by the Houston Independent School District. HISD was among the first school districts to introduce public charter schools to its students and families. And in the mid-90s, it granted its first three charters to three Teach for America alumni-led public charter schools. These were truly groundbreaking ideas that turned into successful startups by bringing different members of the community together around a shared vision and a shared purpose, and then executing with everyone's complementary contributions. And that reinforces, I think, my own personal narrative and my pivots around startups. Like I love being part of startups and being at the ground up. When I joined Virgin in 2006, Virgin had a lot of tremendous brand awareness in the UK for its record stores, the music label, music festivals, and the beginning of Virgin Atlantic. But in the US, people knew Virgin for its prepaid burner phones. So to expand the possibilities, we use the UK music heritage as a jumping point to start a music and arts and sustainability focused Virgin Festival. The brand was expressed differently than it was in the UK, but fundamentally, it stayed kind of core to being an irreverent and fun consumer champion. And that was meant to intrigue U.S. consumers to consider flying the new kind of airline, which was Virgin America, or staying at a different kind of hotel that wasn't going to nickel and dime you. And that was Virgin Hotels. And then when we met, you were at KIPP. And the KIPP founders were both Teach for America core members and then went on to start a school in Houston, which then became a school in New York and a school in Houston. And then now it's well over 200 schools serving over 100,000 students nationally. You joined KIPP very early in its existence. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got from Teach for America to KIPP and what it was like there and any similarities you saw with Teach for America? So I had moved down to Houston and I was enjoying a really exciting role in arts education at the Museum of Fine Arts. And I wanted to do something. I wanted to try something a little different. And so I started to pursue my MBA 
at the University of Houston, and I was recruited to join a software company. It's a publicly traded software company. And it was a new experience for me. I really liked learning in this new environment. And the KIPP founders, who I'd known for a very long time through Teach for America, they approached me and said, how can you sleep at night knowing that you didn't spend every waking minute of the day helping children achieve their fullest potential. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. (laughs) So they said, we need some help with grant writing. We need to get some funding in order to support the longer hours that KIPP schools have. So would you be interested in helping get some funding for us? So I wrote a grant to the NFL Foundation at the time, and we immediately got the grant. They said, good job. Can you write us another one to the DOE? So I said, sure. I wrote another one. And then that turned into a full-time job, and I became the founding communications lead for KIPP Foundation. And at that time, Don and Doris Fisher, who had started The Gap, Banana Republic, Old Navy, et cetera, and were really incredible vanguards of public education reform. They wanted to essentially scale in a, a very aggressive way the KIPP schools all across the country. And so in order to do that, the idea was, well, you can't clone humans, not yet, but what you can do is create a school leader fellowship and identify incredibly promising teachers who were the first ones in, last ones out, academic achievement, operational achievement, all of that is in evidence and they need leadership skills. They need to scale their leadership skills and their operational skills. So let's go find those teachers and give them the tools and also the resources to build KIPP schools around the country. That's how I actually first heard about you. I heard about you before I met you because I remember learning about this smart-ass (laughs) award-winning teacher from Washington Heights, beloved by Casey and Peter Jennings. And the KIPP Foundation was so excited that they had managed to convince you to join KIPP as a school leader. So I was really, really lucky to get to work with people like you. I think there were only five other school leaders in the cohort prior to you, before you and Maggie and everybody else joined. And it was a real privilege and it was a real eye-opening experience to get to work alongside you and that class to build these enduring KIPP schools that are still to this day. Schools that I talk about, networks and communities that I talk about, I learned so much about brand building through actually you and that cohort, as well as Don and Doris Fisher. So my perception of how the Fishers were thinking about this was, look, we took one store that sold blue jeans in San Francisco and turned it into thousands of stores nationwide. And if we could do that for great schools, we would end up with great education for thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids, which has now become true. And obviously not everything that applies to building a national brand of clothing stores applies to building a school network. But what did you learn from the Fishers at the time that either contributed to helping you in the early days of KIPP or since then in your various other organizations you've worked in? Ryan, I think you are better equipped to answer that question than me, given what you did and what you and your founding teachers did at Team Academy and turning that into an incredible network of schools across New Jersey and now Miami. I will say that I learned a tremendous amount from Dawn about the qualities of a successful organization. It starts with leadership. And Dawn, even at the very beginning, when, again, we were nothing but ambition and promise, he didn't want us to overreach. 
And so the point was, let's talk about the progress that we're making and not the results that we think we're going to be able to achieve because overpromising can be very dangerous. So let's just talk about the progress we're making and also the people, the community that we have started to have on our side. And so the focus of all of our communications material and our storytelling became people like you, you know, what it is that you came to the network with. What is your vision for what you want to grow and who have you already started to bring into your community? One of the things that I noticed about you, Ryan, that I thought was incredibly actually strategic and smart is that originally, remember, you wanted to start a school in Washington Heights and there was more community acceptance and interest in Newark. And you didn't want to go into Newark unless you had strong community buy-in. And so you said, if I can't bring in Shavar Jeffries, who remains one of my favorite people, you weren't going to go in there. And so again, like I said, you know this better than I do. You knew that in order to get in and be successful in Newark, you had to win the hearts and minds of community members. And that started with someone like Shavar. And I thought that was incredibly prescient. And to this day, I refer to that story as an example of strong leadership and building community. Yeah, I was pretty lucky. The first two Newarkers I met, the very first one was Shavar, who, for our listeners who don't know, is a community leader, was a civil rights attorney in Newark. He's from Newark. And actually, when I, w- I was coaching basketball in Washington Heights, and I had had a friend who coached across the street from me. And he said, if you're even thinking about Newark, you have to meet this guy who I went to college with. He's my best friend and he eats, sleeps and drinks Newark and you got to meet him. So he introduced me to Shavar and Shavar ended up running for mayor. He's now the CEO of the National KIPP Network. But yeah, we needed that buy-in right away. And then the other person I met was a young city councilman at the time by the name of Cory Booker, who I met him and he's like, you know, one day I'm going to be mayor. We're going to do great things for education. And it was clear that he was on a mission to really make Newark one of the best cities in America for education and certainly brought us a long way towards that goal in his time there prior to being a senator as he is today. So then you moved from KIPP to something totally different, at least seemingly Virgin, where you were the head of PR and communications for Virgin Galactic and worked alongside another very well-known and sort of quintessential entrepreneur in Richard Branson. How'd you get from KIPP to Virgin? You know, I'm going to pause a little bit and start from kind of the beginning and how I choose to make moves across my professional career. I'm a lifelong learner and my curiosity drives where I spend my time and my energy. And to be a learner requires quite a bit of tolerance for discomfort. My tolerance for discomfort and ambiguity probably comes from a life of having moved around a lot as a child of a diplomat. And I remember that when my parents moved us to Sweden, I was bilingual in both Korean and English at the time. And they sat me down and said, okay, there are no English language schools in Stockholm, but there's a French language school. Would you like to go to a French language school? And I said, how am I going to survive in the playground and the neighborhood in Sweden without Swedish friends? No, I'm not going to a French language school. I'm going to learn Swedish. And they said, are you sure? Are you sure about that? Are you sure about the practicalities? As a second grader, what was I going to say? No, it was very good all the way. So after having to learn English in a British school in Malaysia, I had to quickly learn Swedish 
And it reminds me that kids are incredibly resilient and adaptive and brave. And in many ways, I think about children and how much they've, they have to adapt and again, be brave and have a tolerance for a lot of embarrassment, failure, but also it's incredibly gratifying. And so when I feel like I'm not learning enough in a role, I start to get a little antsy and look around for stretch projects within the firm. And um, one of the most generous things that someone can do is to take a chance on you. And Dan Porter, who is another one of my favorite people, he and I were both on the founding team of Teach for America. And like I said, that bond is for life. And you learn so much about people's capabilities in a startup environment. Fast forward to my fifth year as the founding head of communications for KIPP Foundation, I was seeking more learning opportunities. And Dan, at that time, was looking for someone within Virgin Group to help him start a music festival for Virgin Group while they were brand building in advance of launching a domestic airline, and that would be Virgin America. I didn't know the first thing about running a music festival. So I said to Dan, I can go help you find a freelance person. And he said, no, I I want you to do it because I've seen you execute and I know you're not going to get egg on my face. Don't fuck it up, but like, I know you can do this. So Kip and Richard Barth at the time was gracious enough to put my job on ice for six months while I scratched my itch at Virgin. And in October of 2006, I found myself leading this music festival, walking Richard Branson, who I had just met, and the CEOs of a number of virgin companies. I walked them up on stage to watch The Who, who opened for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Let that sink in. They saw some of my, I guess, best attributes because of my childhood, because of my experience with a lot of uncertainty. I tend to be unflappable in high stakes situations. I can make sound decisions under duress. I can identify the best qualities in people. I'm very positive. And so, you know, fast forward to um, after the music festival, I was back in New York. I was packing up my things in the boxes at the Virgin office when the CEO of Virgin USA said to me, where are you going? I said, I'm going back to my real job. This is fantasy land. And she said, oh, no, no, no. We're going to make a job for you. So she created a role for me to be the SVP of corporate communications at Virgin Group to help lead this fantastic period of growth of Virgin brands across North America during the 12 years that I was there. I got to work alongside Richard during a time where we launched Virgin America, we launched Virgin Hotels, we launched Virgin Voyages and a number of other companies. And during the last three years of my tenure at Virgin Group, I was the head of communications for Virgin Galactic and the other space companies. It was an incredible time. And once again, I was having to learn and stretch in sectors that I knew nothing about, but coming in with a sense of humility and a sense of possibility across all these sectors enabled me to uncover things that I don't think I would have been able to had I been an expert in the field. I was able to really like unearth gold and talent and potential and ideas and partnerships that I think were very virgin without me even quite understanding that. So Virgin at this time, obviously a huge company, but starting these new ventures within the U.S. in a variety of different areas. I'm familiar with the early days of Kip, obviously, and it was full of very mission oriented and driven people, but also very chaotic at the time. Is that true in a startup in a place like Virgin, where they have this combination of 
entrepreneurialism and stability. How did was it similar or different to Teach for America and KIPP? You know, I think it was actually quite similar because like KIPP, which had a certain set of standards, of criteria of what a successful public school would have, Virgin had something similar in terms of these are the values of a Virgin business. These are the brand North Stars. And you can be creative and dynamic and flexible within your sector because at Virgin, the idea was you're building startups that are going to be disruptive in entrenched industries. And that's not dissimilar to KIPP, but you had to meet these particular standards. So within those standards, you can be very creative, but the whole idea is to offer something unique and differentiated for the consumer. Virgin was very much the consumer advocate. And I think that was, again, not dissimilar to how KIPP approached offering something differentiated to community members and to students. And then along the way, whether it's Wendy Kopp or the KIPP co-founders or uh, Richard Branson you've worked with, and then subsequently in venture capital, you've worked with founders of all different stripes. What makes a great founder or entrepreneur in your view? I've noticed three key attributes of effective leadership. The first is storytelling. Leaders are always needing to expand their community of stakeholders, people who are going to join you in your endeavor as advisors, teammates, volunteers, partners, investors, and smart people want to tackle tough challenges. And effective leaders use every opportunity to talk about the quality of their team, the challenges being tackled, the progress being made, but also the work ahead. I'll quickly say that, you know, what we do at M13 is we are an early stage consumer tech investing firm. We invest in the underlying technology that powers the future of work, health, commerce, and money. And our founders choose M13 because they want to work actively with us to build their startups. They aren't looking for passive checks. And we have 11 partners with decades of experience that can help them see around corners and avoid costly and time-consuming mistakes. And that is very similar to how Virgin operated and built startups. And that's also, I would say, how Don and Doris approached KIPP Foundation and what they were offering to you and the other school leaders. Yeah, that makes sense. I was 24 years old when I started our first school. And for me, it was easy to be humble because I didn't actually know anything. And so um, I learned a lot from Kip and from other mentors along the way from you as well and knew that I had to cuz I was trying to figure out how to do this as I was going and definitely had to lean on my team we in fact named our first school Team Academy for that reason that as we say in Kip team always beats individual and we certainly had to live that out as we were building the school one thing I'll say about Team Academy at that time and the role of people like me and foundations and organizations and entities that support founders like you at that early stage, I think it's not only important and useful to ask, what are the attributes to leadership? But I think it's also important to identify what are the key attributes to a successful investor and advisor? And for me, something that's really important is to show up Showing up makes a huge difference. I remember during those early years spending a ton of money and time to get down to Newark to 85 Custer Avenue. The taxi drivers by Penn Station, they remembered me. They would turn around and say, oh yeah, you want to go to Weekawake Park, right? Like you want to go all the way over there. That archdiocese building that was leaking from the inside, even when it wasn't raining, 
I had to go and see for myself what was going on and the hard work that you and the team, the kids and the grandparents and the aunts and uncles who were supporting the children were doing. Like I had to see it for myself in order to build and restore my conviction and trust in what was going on. And also then to apply my skills and my abilities to bring more people to that school to bear witness and also to support in meaningful ways the work that was going on there. It's it's incredibly important to do that. I also think it's incredibly important to help convey and share the stories that you might not even understand go a long way in expressing the values and the purpose and intent behind what you were building. I mean, to me, room number nine represented you literally roiling on the floor in pain from kidney stones. And you insisted (laughs) on having that board meeting, despite you needing to go to the emergency room. Are we calling those the good old days? (laughs) (laughs) They were old days anyways. But that is the stuff of brand building. Those are the stories that I still tell to demonstrate and reinforce the values of KIPP and the foundation of why success happened and why to this day you have alumni who are now teachers at your school, who are parents and teachers. I should say not at your school, at their school. Yeah, we have now over 50 alumni teaching and and working in other positions in our schools. Definitely the highlight of any school visit for me is seeing them in action and they're awesome. So you mentioned that as an entrepreneur, you're telling stories, you're building stories, but then you're telling stories and building a brand over time. And we weren't, in my case anyways, doing that strategically. That was just what we did, right? Like the stories were crazy for one and fun to tell, but two, that did build culture over time and ultimately contributed to the National Kit brand and to our own local brand. I imagine you're more strategic about it than certainly I was at the time. And now when you work with founders, what are some of those lessons that you've learned and how you build a brand? And then also, you know, what are some of the landmines that you help them avoid? Well, in terms of the landmines, the most interesting stories I have are probably ones I can't share on a podcast. (laughs) Um, That said, there are a few key principles that I do like to share with founders. You know, founders sometimes come to me and they say, I want PR. And I think in their minds, PR means a press release and somehow that gets fed to media and then their story gets told. And the reality is, you can't feed anyone anything. Again, it's it's about building trust. It's about engaging in long-term relationship building. And that starts with conversations and letting them come inside the tent or the school or whatever environment where you're creating to give them a sense of both the opportunity, the obstacles, and also the qualifications of the team. Like what gives you the unique right to be where you're sitting to be able to achieve what you want to achieve. So letting your storytellers, your channels be part of the community, I think is a key attribute. And that includes essentially building every channel you can imagine where your audiences lie. So it could be like starting to build out a newsletter that has useful and functional information to your community members. It could also mean making sure that you lift up and praise your partners, people within your community who are doing good things that are adjacent to your values and to the work that you're doing. So really like doing kind of table stakes activity to make sure that you continue to win the hearts and minds of people who are already inside your community. I think it also 
also means to always be thinking about recruiting. When you go out there and you tell your story, you're keeping an eye out for opportunities in people. So whether or not you're at a point where you're hiring talent, you always have to be in that evangelizing what you're doing because you are going to be growing. You have to be scaling and you're scaling fast. So making sure that you go out there and reach people that you don't even know that you are probably going to need is a really important skill. And I think listening to your own employees and listening to your team is an incredible attribute. Something that I learned very quickly at Virgin and also at Kitty Hawk, the eVTOL company where I was the head of brand. One of the first things I did at Kitty Hawk was I went on a listening tour. I met with a lot of engineers and you know, I was an English major. I came from a liberal arts environment. I didn't know the first thing about engineering, avionics, GNC, none of these things. And yet what I wanted to do is really understand, okay, we are building something that the world has never seen before. We are trying to eliminate traffic by building flying cars. What does that actually mean? What is the work involved? And what are these engineers scared of? And what I learned really quickly was that the engineers were not scared of the technology. They were extremely confident about what it could do to improve the way we work and live. What they were most nervous about is how people would receive it because they had been in stealth mode for so long. So I said, okay, well then let's make sure that we give people a peek into the progress of our activity. This is also what we did early on at Virgin Galactic. We made sure to not keep things hidden. We would open up the hangar doors, let people come in, see what was being built so they could see something that was what may be perceived as a classified flying object. And suddenly it became something that had a name, the VSS Unity. It had a beautiful shape. They could imagine themselves being a pilot or a passenger or an engineer or a space wrench working in and building space companies and building spaceships. So there's something very powerful about imagining yourself as being part of the future. And that's what we enabled our engineers to do, both at Virgin Galactic and at Kitty Hawk. And to this day, I'm really proud of the courage that our engineers had to, again, open the proverbial hangar doors and let people come in and learn how to fly what they were building, because it definitely gave them confidence that the public actually wanted this and we could continue making progress in building these things. That's interesting. It reminds me of some of the critics that we've had over the years, oftentimes, you know, a university professor who has some, you know, built in perceptions or misperceptions about charter schools or has heard things about KIPP that don't represent who we actually are. And we always found that as long as they were actually well intended, which most of them were, if we invited them in and, and just showed them what we're actually doing, it sort of takes it out of the theoretical and scary place and into like, this is actually what's working. Because when I started, I was like, who could possibly object to us trying to get more kids into college? Like, that seems like a pretty unassailable goal or inoffensive goal. And what we were doing was clearly working, but we still had a lot of critics who would say this or that. And I was like, they don't know what they're talking about. But as soon as we invited them in, nine times out of 10, it totally changed the dynamic. Yeah. It's such a good point about conversation and bringing people in. At M13, during the pandemic, we realized pretty quickly that our office was not going to be a place where people would come in to do heads down work. And our office had been filled with nothing but desks. And we decided that we would dismantle our desks, which again, we use for heads down, independent work, 
we put them in storage so we can make room for our community to come together and interact with each other. And to this day, that's what happens in our office. It's where we get to know people who we've been Zooming with. And the level of trust that accelerates is is incredibly powerful to see. It's like visible. People who didn't quite understand us or are just getting to know us and consider us. It is such a powerful way to establish credibility. And, you know, the last time I was in that office, actually, the office I'm talking about is in Santa Monica. It was the morning of the bank run on SVB. M13, we have three female partners. And so I was in town and we had scheduled a female VC brunch that Friday morning. And what was a extremely stressful situation full of unknowns was made less terrible because we were all together. We were physically together with each other. Panic can be fueled by the inexperienced and by the scared. And panic can also be dampened by calm, experienced survivors of past obstacles and downturns and macro headwinds. And it can be pretty infectious to bring people together and unite people around what we have in common versus what we don't. On the communications front, what are some other ways that you weather a crisis? So, you know, in schools, we'll have something happen. Like we, we've had, for instance, a parent bring a gun into a school and Thankfully, no one was hurt, but it certainly made it into the media and sort of damaged people's perceptions of our schools and and scared a lot of people within the school as well. I'm sure whether it's Virgin or Flying Cars or, or any of the companies you've been in, you must have seen quite a few crises. What are some of the tips that you would give for someone trying to make it through one of those? Yeah. So as I said before, one of the most important things that founders and founding teams can do from the very beginning is to build channels that enable you to reach your immediate stakeholders and community members. Again, for good days and also for bad days. For good days when you want to acknowledge the progress or a milestone of something and you want to celebrate and shout out your partners, your community members, students, and so forth. And that enables your community members to then echo and also praise what you're doing and to have something to talk about that's positive. On bad days, those channels can be extremely useful in sharing updates and progress and admitting mistakes and also correcting possible misinformation. And so making sure that those channels are robust and that someone is on top of it and is continuing to build and to maintain those channels and create engagement is a really important function. And it's extremely strategic to do. The other thing I would say is during a crisis situation, and this is also during normal, stable times, is what you say on the inside is going to be a mirror of what you say on the outside. If what you say on the outside doesn't reflect what's really going on on the inside, you're going to start to create some issues and there'll be some fissures. So making sure that internal culture, internal communications are buttoned up and are intentional, I would say that is a very important role that the founding team members have to play. And that goes a long way in making sure that internally, Not only are the founding team members and leaders aware of what employees are worried about and are concerned about, but they're also able to then articulate to you, these are things that other people are talking about. Let's make sure to tackle them head on. Let's make sure to communicate how to fix these problems. And also, if we don't know the answer, 
let's be humble about it and let's acknowledge we don't know the answer to this, but we know that these are burning questions and we're going to make sure that we give you the answers. To give you a very small example, during the times where there were issues and crises across some of our Virgin companies, we would make sure that we would communicate out. At that time, we used Twitter to say, we know that this is happening and we're on top of it. And every hour, we would give some kind of update. Sometimes we would go as far as to reskin the homepage of the website, knowing that lots of people would care and they were curious and they wanted to know what was happening. We wanted to express that we were taking it very seriously. To pretend that it's not happening, to pretend that the community doesn't really care about it, is also very tone deaf. So to show that we care means doing something like reskinning the website or changing your social so that you have a hotline or an email address that people can go to for more information. I think those signals go a long way into reinforcing the trust that they've already given you. Whether it's a crisis that causes like a hit to your brand overall, or just the evolution of the company creates a new brand. I imagine there are companies that are very strategic about how they reset that brand or evolve it. And then there are some where it just evolves on its own. And I think about like Virgin, they were selling CDs at the time, as far as I remember. And then they became uh, airline as well and music festivals and everything else that they did. Or even in Kip, where at the beginning it was every single one of our kids is going to go to college. And then, you know, how we thought about that evolved as we saw that, yes, for most of them, that is the right path. But for some of them, it just doesn't make sense or they're not ready to do that when they're done with high school. And we didn't want the 15, 20% of kids who were not going to college to feel like they were unsuccessful or not supported by our organization. So we had to evolve how we talked about that. And I'm curious, like, how intentional are you with your companies in sort of saying, here's what we're going to say our brand is, whether that's at the beginning of a company or even as it evolves, like, here's how we're going to change it. Do you go through like a refresh process or a brand setting process? Well, when you're building a business, when you're building anything that serves a community, you are building something that has to be agile and responsive to market changes and what the community wants. And I think Kip was very astute and thoughtful and intentional about starting out with to and through college and at the same time, as the years passed, recognizing that things are changing. And so the brand has to change with it. And that continual communication, the listening and understanding, and then the intentional changes that have to be made to accommodate what the community wants, I think is a really important attribute of an agile, enduring company. So the brand and brand communications is such an essential part of the strategy because if you are not explaining what's going on and that you've heard what people are saying and are requesting and you're making accommodations and adjustments and evolving according to the needs, that's actually part of the brand story. That's part of the strategy that you want to communicate. So it goes very much in hand with the strategic rollout of the evolving business. I think that's the key point to remember is that things are always going to change. And so to build leadership and to build channels to ensure that the community is part of that process and is also excited to support the evolution of a changing company. Yeah, it was surprising to me how quickly in the absence of that kind of intentionality, how quickly people would just say, oh, Kip doesn't care about college anymore. And it's like, 
No, that's not true. That's not what we're saying. We're just not saying it's 100% of students who will ultimately go on to college. We still want to push very hard to make sure that 100% of them have that option. But if they choose not to, that we support them in other paths. But as soon as you start that conversation, if you don't do all those steps that you're talking about, people will sort of make up their own mind about what you're, um, about what you're doing. And, and we, we certainly saw that both internally and with some external audiences as well. One of the things that is so important to remember in brand communications is to not get hung up or distracted by the noise, the noise that doesn't serve you. And the way I think about noise is to make sure that our focus remains on continuing to win the hearts and minds of the community members that are with you and that are already inside the tent. We don't want to neglect the family members that are sitting right next to you, right? Like you can take people for granted who are already there. So I like to remind myself to stay human and humble and to remember to hug your community members very, very close instead of being distracted by the noise out there. I think that's a great message and certainly resonates with my experience Christine, where can people find you if they want to learn more about your work? Oh, gosh. They can find me on LinkedIn. I'm trying to get better at posting content on LinkedIn. (laughs) I use it to call attention to female founders, underestimated opportunities. You can also find me on Instagram. I like to post about cats and food, if that's your bailiwick. And uh, hopefully you can find me in Newark at the next Be The Change. Our annual celebration of our students and teachers. Christine, thank you so much. It's been great to have you here. Ryan, thank you so much for inviting me on. I really enjoyed chatting with you and uh, I look forward to seeing you at Be The Change.